Good morning. Hello. Rain's got everybody sneezing a little bit. I might project a little bit more if you want to dial that back a little bit, Brian. Um, if you have your Bibles, get those out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, uh, the fifth chapter in the gospel according to Matthew. Again, Matthew is the, the first book of your Bibles. And we are continuing our sermon series this morning, uh, studying one of the greatest sermons ever preached by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, by way of orientation, we, we've framed the Sermon on the Mount as the foundational teaching, or maybe you could think of it as the constitution, the constitution of the kingdom of God. The constitution of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the, the rule and reign uh, of Jesus in our souls and our society, which leads to human flourishing. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're not just talking about something that's up there and out there. We're talking about the, the very real and present rule and reign of Jesus in our hearts and in the world that leads to human flourishing. And when Jesus uh, showed up on the scene in first century Judea, his, his, his message primarily revolved around this idea of the kingdom, which is why we're framing it in this way. If you look back to, to chapter 4, verse 17, we see that his preaching ministry began with the words, repent, or turn around and come this way, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, which is another way of saying it is present, it is here among you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come to give you the kingdom. Matthew positions Jesus in the same way that Jesus positions himself, not just as a, a good moral teacher, but as the king of God's kingdom, who qualifies us to, to enter his kingdom by faith in his own perfect life, substitutionary death on our behalf, to pay for our sins, and victorious resurrection from the dead. Which, by the way, not only secures for us forgiveness from sins, but also qualifies us to, to enter God's family and, and, and gains us passport into his, into his kingdom, that we might be citizens of the kingdom, set free from slavery to sin and adopted into the kingdom of God. And what the Sermon on the Mount is doing is really painting a picture for us of what it looks like to live as if that's true, to, to live out that reality of, of the kingdom in our lives. It's not a road map to earn salvation, okay, this, that's important as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a road map to, to earn favor with God, but it's an invitation to live out the identity that he has given us by faith. What does it look like to lean into and live out these these values and virtues of the kingdom. It looks like the kingdom. It looks like the Sermon on the Mount. So if you were to break down uh, the Sermon on the Mount into parts, you could think of verses 1 to 20, verses 1 to 20 as a sort of preamble, the preamble to the, to the Constitution, the preamble to the Sermon. In the first 11 verses, we've talked about the last few weeks and even last year, are these blessings that are given to citizens of the kingdom. And now we come to the familiar passage, which we, which we just read, where Jesus is going to illustrate what our posture should be towards the world. What our posture should be towards the world around us. 
And if you remember nothing else, I want you to remember this, that Jesus stations us, he stations the church in the world as embassies of his kingdom. You think about what an embassy does, right? We, we represent the kingdom in our community. He, he set us as embassies of his kingdom in order that we would have real redemptive influence on the world around us. That we would have redemptive influence on the world around us. We're called to preserve the world from, from decay and light the way home to God. We are called to preserve the world from decay and light the way home to God. Let's read again Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May the Holy Spirit write its eternal truths upon our hearts. So, I've been working on my posture. It's, it's tough when you're, when you're tall and thin. You know, I've just been working on trying to stand up straight with my, with my shoulders back. Uh, and we even got this, like, um, this, like, strap that you can wear on your back that holds your, holds your shoulders back, kind of a straight jacket for your back. And what it does is it, re- it retrains your muscles so that it fixes your posture. And I know that because that's what the scientists on TV said. Um, actually, I don't think it did. <laughs> I take it off, and my shoulders are just like, oh, thank goodness. That was a lot of work. <laughs> There's no quick fix to y- your posture, okay? It just takes practice, getting stronger. And, and this matters because your posture really shapes the health of the rest of your body, right? Um, and it impacts the way that other people perceive you. In much the same way, our, our spiritual and relational posture both as individuals and as the church, is going to shape our spiritual health as a community. And it's going to impact the way that that others view us and and the way that others view God. We are the body of Christ, after all. Our our posture matters. And so I want us to see in this text, these short verses here this morning, uh, an answer to the question, what is our posture to be towards the world? Is 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 it combative? Is it a combative posture? Is it reclusive and, and, and retreatist? Is it conforming, right, and consuming? What, what is our posture towards the world? And the first thing I want us to notice is that our posture flows out of, of who we are. Our, our posture towards the world flows out of, of who we are, who God has made us and saved us to be and the, and the purpose that he's given us as his people. Look at verse 13 again. He says, You are the salt of the earth. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. Again, it's worth repeating. Jesus is not teaching us how to get saved. He's saying to those who have received salvation through faith in him, this is is what it looks like to, to act like it. This is who you are. You've been given a new identity. You are my children. You are the citizens of my kingdom. 
You are salt. You are light. This is who and what you are. You, this is just you, who you are. What does it look like to, to live like it? You are salt in a world of decay. You are light in a world of, of darkness. Jesus sent us into the world to have redemptive influence. As he says later in the Gospels, just as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We are on a mission. Okay, So this is all has to do with who we are, who God has made us and saved us to be. We are on a mission. You've been given a purpose. And your purpose determines your posture. Your purpose determines your posture. Okay, if, if you were to believe that your purpose is simply to, to just enjoy the pleasures of life and, and be comfortable, then your posture is going to be shaped like the contours of your couch. Okay? If, if you are uh, linebacker of the 49ers, Fred Warner, and you believe that your purpose is to, to tackle Isaiah Pacheco so that you can help your team win the Super Bowl, I'm sorry, Helen, I should have used, I should have flipped the analogy. Um, we got a Chiefs fan in the house. If that's what you believe your purpose is, then your, your posture is going to be strong and, and, and spring-loaded, head on a swivel, right? Ready to go. I'm not saying that we should go out there tackling poor strangers. I'm just saying that our purpose determines our posture. And as you continue to read the New Testament, you learn that the kingdom of God, again, is not just something up there that one day God's going to teleport us to. The, the kingdom of God is a, is a reality of submitting to the rule and reign of Christ. It's the good, true, and beautiful reign of Jesus, which is even now advancing, taking ground, pushing back the darkness, restoring brokenness, redeeming marriages, families, and relationships, transforming souls and societies through the power of the gospel. And that happens as we go into the world and come into contact with people who don't know Christ and we share something of, of the gospel, something of the kingdom blessings with other people. This is what Isaiah prophesied of in Isaiah chapter 2. It said, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills like this city on a hill that we just read about and all the nations shall flow into it he's talking about the church he's talking about the people of god as peter says you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation that you may proclaim the excellences excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light that's our purpose and that purpose should determine our posture towards the world and so what is that posture well, Jesus does what he often does. He's very helpful, Jesus is. He's a good teacher. He gives, us, he gives us some metaphors, some very familiar metaphors. As one commentator said, there's nothing more useful than salt and, and sunshine. So he says first in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, the salt of the earth. Let's start there with salt. What does Jesus mean? Well, um, in our time, you know, salt kind of gets a bad rap. You never want to be described as salty, right? Stop being salty, bro. But in this day and age, it was very different. You wanted to be, being salty was a compliment. Salt was of immense value, so much so that in Rome, it was used as a form of currency. This is where we get the phrase, he's worth his weight in salt. 
Salt was valuable. Why? Not just because it flavors food. I think that's what we initially go to in our minds. Like, I love to just douse whatever I'm eating in salt and hot sauce. That's not primarily what he's talking about here. He's, he, he's referring to, to salt's ability to preserve food from decay. Food was, uh, salt was a preservative. It, it preserved food from bacteria and decay. It was like the refrigeration of the day. You are the refrigerators of the world, something kind of like that, right? It was the primary means of preserving meat. It was also sort of the neosporin of the day. It was one of the primary disinfectants for, for wounds, In in both cases, what does salt do? What does salt do? Salt protects against, it fights against, it preserves against decay. Decay and and disintegration. And friends, this tells us something uh, rather challenging about our world. This this tells us something rather uncomfortable about our world. Right? If, if, If Jesus is saying that his people are to be like salt that preserves against decay, then what is he saying about the world? He's saying that the world, the world around us, is like meat that's prone to rot. It's like bodies with an infection that's prone to spread. That's the natural human condition apart from God's intervention. The natural tendency of the world is to go from deception to to disorientation to decay and then ultimately to destruction. That's the trajectory of the world apart from God's intervention. That's the trajectory of your, your friends and your loved ones and your coworkers, apart from God's intervention in their life. Deception, disorientation, and decay. And look, that shouldn't surprise you because this is, we're not immune to this. This is our natural state, apart from God's grace at work in our, in our lives. If you just follow the path of least resistance and just do whatever comes most naturally and is most comfortable for you, where does that leave you. It's not a good spot. And so Jesus is saying that the witness of the church has, has the real power and influence to prevent social decay. And it's not because we're so special and we're so smart and we're so holy. It's because Jesus has he's healed us. He's, he's come in and he's, he's touched the, the, the bacteria in our souls. And he's, and he's healed us. He, he touches the lepers and he, and he heals them, right? So he's come to us who are sick, who are sick in our sin, who are decaying of soul. And he he touches us and he heals us, not because we've done anything to earn it or deserve it, but simply because he loves us. He's he's healed us. He's given us new hearts. And then in this new state, he he allows us to operate not from self-centeredness, but selflessness and sacrifice and love. As a good doctor, what he did was he made us aware of our sickness in order that we might receive the cure. And this is why, as the church, we we have to to speak and work against the evil of the world. We have to. We, We can't stay silent, right? And I think it's related here to the passage above where he talks about persecution. Because if we're really doing this, really living like salt if if we're really saying things like abortion is bad it's displeasing to god right it's it's the unjustified taking of human life there's going to be 
people who don't like that, right, who, who come against that. If, if, if we say, no, we don't get to, de- to determine our sexuality just because of how we feel, right, that, that's, we don't have the right and the privilege to do that. God made us, and he's assigned us a certain way to, to live into that. That might be hard, that might be disorienting, that might be uncomfortable, but, but the one who made us gets to determine what we were made for. We say things like that, we're going to get pushback. If we say things like it's important that we give our kids a, a real, genuine, meaningful Christian education, right? and we want to protect them and preserve them from the, from the decay of society that would seek to teach them things that are contrary to, to Scripture, we have to protect them. Right? We, can't, we can't offload the, the responsibility of educating our kids to, to the government. Right? That's going to that's gonna garner some pushback, maybe even some hatred. But we don't just speak boldly against the ills that kind of feel like are out there. We, we address the ills that might corrupt us from the inside, things like pride or bitterness, infighting, unforgiveness. Right? No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to take things too personally. We're not going to hold things against one another. We're going we're gonna to reconcile. We're going to forgive. We're going to confess sins. We're going to build relationships. We're going to have hard conversations. We're going to preserve the body against, against the decay of, of pride and bitterness that would seek to grow in our midst. What Jesus is saying here is that the world is not as bad as it could be because of the gospel working through you. It should be the case that your family... That, that your classroom, that your, that your school, that, your, that the clubs that you're a part of, that, that your workplace, that your team at work, right, that your, that your neighborhood is actually perceivably better because you're there. Our posture is one of preservation and protection. It's, it's one of bold confrontation against the moral decay and disintegration of our time. Might not always feel good, Salt fights bacteria. It sometimes stings, but without it, we're left to the dehumanizing decay of evil and self-centeredness that would wreak havoc upon human beings that God loves. We can't stand for that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Because, as G.K. Chesterton once said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. Our posture, like salt, is one of preservation, but it's also, like light, one of illumination and beautification. Look at what he says. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And what does it do? It gives light to all in the house. There's much we could say about light. It's one of the primary themes in all of scripture. But one of the things I think Jesus has in mind is that light illuminates the way. It, it helps us to see it. It, it. it lights the way home. The light of the world here is a reference to the sun, which lights up everything. Uh, city on a hill refers to these ancient cities that dotted the hills that would, that would guide travelers home when it was dark. And this light here, this lamp here that's spoken of, it, it gives light to everyone 
who is in the house. It allows for meals and times with family after dark. All of these things are are means of direction and life and relationship and beauty. And I don't want you to miss the way that this feels. He's not calling us to a cold and detached holiness. He's calling us to a hospitable holiness. A happy holiness. An attractive holiness that draws people in. I mean, just listen to the language. Verse 16. Let your light shine. Let your light shine before others. He didn't say shine your light at people like my son does with the flashlight when he blasts me in the eyes with it. Let your light shine before others. And then he says that they may see your good works. This is important too. He says good works. The word for good there is kalos. It's not hagios, it's kalos. Kalos really has more to do with uh, beauty and attractiveness and inspiration, right? That they may see your, your works, your life, which is attractive and beautiful and inspiring and, and, and compelling. And that it would draw them to, to give glory to your Father. That through your beautiful countercultural life and relationships with people, they'd be drawn to see the glory of their Heavenly Father who loves them and wants to adopt them into his family, just like he's done for you. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer for what? For the hope that is in you. How is it that you can be so forgiving even after that person has wronged you the way that they did? How is it that you can have so much peace when your circumstances are so difficult? How is it that you can be so generous with your time and energy, even for those who give nothing back to you in return? How is it that you can be fully present with people without being riddled by the ever-present anxiety that we see around us? It's not because we're great. It's not because we're great. These things are impossibly hard. But it's because the light of Jesus lives inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, the life I now live, I live by the power of Christ within me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ. And one more little point here before I start to move towards application. I love how the, the imagery kind of uh, covers uh, multiple levels of scale here. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. A lamp that gives light to all in the house. See that? World, hill, house. Jesus is saying that the light of the gospel, working through his people, has power to illuminate your individual soul, your household, your whole family, and all of society. As Christian missiologist Leslie Newbegin has said, the church does not exist for its own sake, but as a foretaste of the kingdom and a means of redemption for the rest of society. What a beautiful picture. What a wonderful privilege. And I think here there's a, um, an important juxtaposition between salt and light. So maybe you felt it even as we were going through. Salt carries a more, uh, you could say, perhaps confrontational posture as it fights off moral decay and degradation. Light carries a more invitational and hospitable posture as it shows people the way home. And we need both. The church is to be both confrontational against evil and compelling to people. That folks would, would want to be a part of what's going on here. That we would be both convictional and compassionate. 
both serious and sincere, distinct and delightful, holy and happy, bold and beautiful, uncompromising and ever full of joy. Can these things coexist in our body? Well, I think this is what we see in the life of Jesus. And he shows us the way to do it. What was Christ's posture towards the world? What was Christ's posture towards the world? Was he of the world? Was he, was he of the world? Was he just accommodating and compromising? Was he affirming of everything and everyone? No, he was not of the world. And we need to be careful that in our effort to be welcoming and to be invitational, that we don't water down the truth of the gospel to make it more palatable to people. Christ was not of the world. Was Christ against the world? Well, no, Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through me might be saved. He was not against the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. We need to be careful that in our, in our effort to, to preserve what is good and to, and, and to fight back against deception and decay, that, that we do not become combative, right? Christ wasn't against the world. Christ was not of the world. He was not against the world. He was for the world. He was for the world. He was for the transformation of the world. And where did this lead him? The Romans wanted him to be of the world. They wanted him to accommodate. They wanted him to, to bend the knee to Caesar. The Jews wanted him to be against the world. They wanted him to institute martial law. But he wasn't going to play by their rules. And so what happened? They killed him. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Listen to this. There were gathered in that city against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Romans, and the people of Israel. He got it from both sides. Ultimately what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, because he was not of the world, because he was not against the world, he took flack from both sides and they nailed him to a cross. But ultimately, it was God's will that he hang there. And as he hung there, what did he do? He, he protected us. He, he protected us from the decay and destruction of our sin. He put it on his back. He shielded us. And he opened, our, opened his arms wide and welcomed us into the family of God. This is the posture of real love, friends. What is our posture towards the world? It's, it's Christ's posture towards you. It's not this. You've sinned against me. Right? It's, all, it's, it's not this. It's not reclusive and retreatist. It's this. It's one of protection and preservation and invitation into the family of God. We are to be those who follow our king as we proclaim with our lips and promote with our lives, friends, that sin is real. That God loves sinners. 
that there's a pathway to redemption and there's no better place to live than under the reign of a good king. We don't retreat. We don't revolt. We exercise redemptive influence in the world. And to give you one little practical thing to take with you, I want to encourage us to be to hold these things in tension here, to be convictional and compassionate as we think about being salt and light, to be convictional and compassionate, that we would be unwavering and uncompromising in our convictions and that we would talk about it and we would not be afraid, but that when we're interacting with somebody who might have a struggle, might have a different belief system than us, We're not trying to attack them. We're not trying to hurt them. They should feel the warmth of your love even as you disagree with them. We should try to understand where someone is coming from. Find common ground. Find ways to connect. Find ways to show them the light and love of their father who wants to bring them home. And maybe some of you need to be pressed in one of those more than the other. Right? Maybe some of you need to have some stronger convictions. You need to stand up straight with your shoulders back. Right? These things are true and they matter. Right? Don't compromise just because it's convenient. And some of you may need to be a little bit more compassionate. Rather than driving by the, the homeless or a strip club, or Planned Parenthood and just feeling animosity and disgust in your heart. Reading the news and seeing the things that happen and seeing what what one people does to another people and just just wishing that God would destroy them. What would it look like to, to feel compassion? That you would see in them your own story. That you too were one who needed God to light the way home. And he didn't do it by beating you up over the head. He did it with his kindness as he drew you to himself. So may we, friends, be salt and light. May we be preserving against decay. And may we push back the darkness with our compassion and our love. And through that, would we exercise redemptive influence in the world that would be real and tangible to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, the vision that you are calling us to is impossible apart from the supernatural power of your Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so, Spirit, I pray even now that you would do the good work of strengthening our convictions and our moral compass, that we would not let the decay and destruction and evil of this world have the last word. Give us confidence and boldness. Help us to speak the truth first to one another in love. Even when it's hard, even when it's challenging. And Lord, would you, would you deepen in us a well of great compassion 
of deep love and sympathy. Help us to see those who are broken the way that you see us. And help us to move towards them with with open arms, with a a posture of, of invitation and kindness in the same way that you have opened your arms to us. And as we live this way, Lord, I pray that you would use us to change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.